Research Podcast, a production of the Communication Research Center at Boston University. This podcast is a presentation by Nancy Signorelli of the University of Delaware, entitled 50 Years of Women on Television. Thanks so much, Jim. Thanks, Michael. And it's University of Delaware. <laughs> I have a cousin who was at yesterday. I visited some cousins yesterday and she's saying, well, you're in Del- you live in Maryland. Just, no, no, I live in, I live in Delaware <laughs> to do that. But anyway, uh, this has been so far a wonderful day, really great experience. And the focus of uh, the talk today, 50 Years of Women on Television, is a topic. It's very near and dear to my heart. Uh, it spans basically my life and particularly my scholarly career. Um, I'm going to talk about some of the research that I have done for the past, you know, 40-some years. And I'm going to talk about some of our current perspectives on cultivation analysis and why this perspective continues to be one of the most long-lived and fruitful communication theories. Now, as a child, I was fascinated with television. Our family, my family, did not become high-tech until I was nine years old. And at that time, we got our very, in, similar to this, Uh, 12-inch television set was in a lovely wooden cabinet, and it was given a place of honor in our living room, uh, what Catherine Montgomery would refer to as kind of the first electronic hearth, and I love that image. Um, I was in heaven. Uh, I would watch television as much as possible, and many, most of my favorite programs, including some early black and white films that migrated to television, focused on women. Um, Most of these women, however, were far from non-traditional because there were few, if any, of those images in the 50s and the 60s. Indeed, few women at all had non-traditional careers. And if you worked outside the home, you often did not have children. So I would watch My Little Margie with Gail Storm, Armis Brooks with Eve Auden. Um, Now, if you've seen Grease, this is the role she basically reproduced in Grease. Uh, Father Knows Best. And then one of my all-time favorite movies, which was One Touch of Venus with Ava Gardner, that always seemed to be on television on those days when I was sick and stayed home from school. And I just watched this, this thing. I got so, I was so fascinated with it that several years ago I tried to and actually found a VHS copy of this, of this movie. But who knew that my fascination would eventually become my life's work? So I headed off to college in the early 60s. And I went to college in a small town in South Central Pennsylvania. College brought new media encounters for me, radio stations that closed up shop at 6 o'clock. And this is something I had never encountered. I grew up in New York City. Television, uh, radio was on all the time. And I was a real fan of radio, a real fan of rock and roll. And I was taken back my first week of college, totally threw me, because the radio station gave the farm report and then turned off at 6 p.m. The only television set around was in the communal uh, dorm you know, lounge, and it played snow. That's, that's what it did. And I felt I was in an alien world. What was I going to do? Because I was a media-dependent child of the 50s. So in the long run, this was probably a very, very good thing, because I got out of watching television, listening to the radio all the time, and got involved in doing academics, and found out, gee, I really like what I'm doing. I really like being in the academics. But those few, first few weeks of college, They were really strange, uh, to say the least. 
And when I went to college, it was a time when more and more women were going to college, but society thought the main reason we should go to college then was to meet the right people, translate that into men. And you were supposed to finish your four years of college and get your MRS, and maybe your BA. Okay, so after college, I didn't progress to that MRS, by the way, <laughs> after college. I had a couple of truly boring jobs um, in media research in advertising agencies in New York City. Um, but it was a time uh, that I once again became immersed in television. And so I was in my favorite shows of the 60s, so Dick Van Dyke show. Uh, featured Mary Tyler Moore along with Rosemary and the, the others. Uh, I Dream of Jeannie was on then, another favorite show. And then, of course, Julia who was the first program to feature a black during prime time. But the boredom and tediousness of these first jobs led me to graduate school. And also raised an uneasiness for me about women's role in society, my role in society. What was I going to do? I wanted more than just you know, being a traditional housewife. It's never for me. Uh, in the early 1967, uh, I had the good fortune to meet the late George Gerbner, who became teacher, friend, mentor, colleague. And as we talked, his argument to me to apply to and join Annenberg's about-to-be-instituted doctoral program made a lot of sense. I applied to the program, got funded, moved to Philadelphia, and didn't once look back. I remained at Penn for 20 years, finishing my doctorate in 75, and continued in a research uh, uh, position working with George and other members of our cultural indicators team, first with Larry Gross, Mike Ely, then with Suzanne Jeffries Fox and Marilyn Jackson Beck. My colleague, uh, Betsy Peirce, talks to them as the hyphenates, because she always says, you know, when she ever was writing her dissertation, writing these all out. Um, then with Michael, and now with Jim. And so today, Michael, uh, Jim, and I are continuing our scholarly relationship. And uh, what? I still have that. I still have that. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's perfect. Uh, our scholarly relationship and moving our messages into the 21st century. So you know, you know Jim. You can figure out who I am. And the one in the middle is Michael Morgan. And um, my graduate students did this several years ago and something. And they have my favorite color. And so it was a whole piece that was, that was going on. But um, the history of television violence is very much tied to my career and scholarly development and has allowed me to pursue the study of women on television. 1969, after the uh, assassin, in 1968, after the assassinations of Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr., President Johnson set up the President's Commission on the Causes and Prevention of Violence. This commission was to look at all the research that had been done and it commissioned one new study, which was uh, George doing the content analysis of television programs. So we, it was to start in 1968, started 1968, we got those programs, and we had subpoena power to get programs from 1967. So we worked on that. And basically everyone who was at Annenberg at that time got involved in this. Um, and it was looking at you know, the amount of violence. Did television contribute to the violence that was rocking society at this, that point? College campuses during the late 60s were hotbeds of protests and so on and so forth. Um, and through the years, this project received a lot of funding, um, first from that President's Commission, then through the Surgeon General Scientific Advisory Committee, then from the Administration on Aging, several different um, agencies that we received it. Now, a couple of years earlier, concern about issues relating to minority portrayals in television also received funding from the government um, in the form of the Kerner Commission. 
and the current commission was looking at are all these images that we're seeing contributing, again, to the amount of civil unrest within society. And the, looking at that, now, violence got funding, minority issues got funding, we never got any funding to study women's issues. You know, we just, you know, do that. But through that funding that was available, we did study women's issues. And uh, the academic community and in the newly formed National Organization for Women was also very much involved in looking at this. So through the research about minority issues, through the research relating to violence, we start to look at gender role images. And this became something very, very important, a very important voice in our um, community. Now our work in the early 1970s with George and with Larry and Michael, um, we had looking at George's paradigm to study mass communication. And which is a paradigm I think is very, very important, one that I use in my teaching a lot. So in order to really understand mass communication, we've got to understand three things. We have to understand about the institutions. So George had what he called institutional process analysis. Let's understand the institutions that create these messages that we receive. And then we have the content or message system analysis, as he referred to, and then cultivation analysis that looks at effects, looking at viewers' conceptions of social reality. So my interest in this has not waned for the past 40 years. I mean, I've been doing this for 40 years. I am still as engrossed in what I'm doing now as I was then. And it is, you know, we face a lot of interesting conceptual challenges today about technological changes in our study of media. So one of the most interesting and complicated changes is in how we watch television. But as we continue to progress in the 21st century, although we spend more and more time with screens, we're all sitting there with screens all the time, phones, everything else, the screen we continue to watch the most is television. Studies show we continually watch at home on our big screen TVs, you know, our electronic carts in the middle of our places. But we also watch on our mobile phones, our iPods, our iPads, whatever else, and our computers that are that it there. Nielsen's recent viewing statistics show that viewing continues to rise. Today, the typical week, the average person watches 35 hours of normal television. And then about two hours of time shifted, 22 minutes of online video, four minutes of mobile video, spending four hours on the internet. We spend a lot of time with all these screens. Um, the average viewer today uh, as Nielsen says, devotes three and a half hours to watching television and simultaneously being on the internet. I have a hard time doing two things like that at once, because when I'm on the internet, I'm just kind of having fun, you know, either I'm doing email or something, and then occasionally I'm shopping, maybe more than occasionally I'm shopping on the internet, because that seems to be fun. Jim and I are kind of talking about that this morning. It'd be kind of interesting to kind of look at kind of the, the products, where do people go when they're shopping on, tele, on, uh, on the internet to do that. Um, so although it may appear that the internet and digital downloading can threaten the stability of traditional media landscape, the turn of the century, there was little evidence that it really does. Um, Burke Inc. In 2000, in 2000 did a report noting that the internet actually encourages and enhances viewing, so we're doing that. And a very neat study 
done by the Kaiser Family Foundation. Those of you who are interested in children and media, uh, Kaiser Family Foundation, KFF.org, has a number of wonderful, wonderful reports. They did a study in um, 2000, it was released in 2010, of 2,000 youngsters and found they spent seven and a half hours a day with media, mostly television, that amounted to 11 hours a day when you took multitasking into account. 11 and 11 hours a day. That's a phenomenal amount of time that kids, and these are kids from um, about eight years old until 18, and they're just spending so much time uh, with media. Now, it's almost more time that they're spending sleeping. You know, many kids will sit there and be texting at night, and this one didn't include texting, but you think about kids go to sleep with their, eye, with their phones, you know, under the pillow so mom doesn't see when they're up there texting in the middle of the night to, uh, to do that. So while people do a lot of multitasking, they're still watching television. But it's really important to remember that the key to television's content is that it's produced by large multinational corporations. Disney is one of them. Um, a lot of similar messages across a lot of different venues. And the continued need, Viacom is yet another one to do that. So given all these high levels of viewing, it's not surprising that television still continues as our central and most pervasive mass media in our culture, playing a distinctive and historically unprecedented role as our nation's most common and constant and vivid learning environment. We all learn from television. So what I've looked at over the past 40 years Gender role images has been one, violence on television has been another. And this kind of started my dissertation research um, that was published in the Journal of Communication in 1973. And it's a topic I've not grown tired of. There have been important strides in the portrayal of both men and women in network prime time broadcast programs. One of the most important issues is the patterns of under and over representation. One of the things, again, is that we're not looking at what any of us are going to see tonight, what any of us are going to see this afternoon, but looking at what are we going to see over time? What's that long-term images? What are we seeing all the time when we watch television? And the focus is what do large communities absorb over time and do that? Images present different venues, this compelling world of time, places, social types, striving, power, and fate. Although there are many different genres in this world, it's a highly controlled assembly line product generated by all of these multinational corporations. People don't live or die. They're created or destroyed to tell a story. And the message of the stories comes out of these aggregations of casting, characterizations, and fate. It tells us who's on top, who's on the bottom, Who's going to win? Who's going to lose? Who's going to succeed? And who's going to fail? And the roles that we see on television are created in direct relation to usefulness in this world. The most numerous are those the ones that television has the most use. If they have the most use, they have more jobs. They have more adventures. They have more sex. They have more power and other opportunities for that. And these values, they're distributed the way most researchers are distributed according to status and power. If you've got more status and more power, you're going to be seen more often. 
Dominant social groups are overrepresented and over endowed not only absolutely but in relation to their numbers in the U.S. population. Minorities have less than their proportionate share of values and resources. It means less usefulness and fewer opportunities. This underrepresentation means we've got less a restricted scope of action, more stereotyped roles, diminished life chances, and undervaluation ranging from relative neglect to what we would also call symbolic annihilation. So, but at the same time, what we've done in our group is we never really want to imply that we need a faithful representation of the world we live in. You know, that could be kind of boring, the whole kind of thing. But we are looking at what is the amplification, what's selected, who's there, and it may deviate from the census. Reality provides a standard by which we can look at the nature of these deviations. The important question has always been not so much that there are deviations as to what kind exist and what are the consequences for thinking, for action, and policy. So I'm going to start to look at some data today, give you some data. I have some charts up here and so on. And the data date from 1967, from the fall of 1967, where we first started doing this. And some of, some of the things will be from mid early 1970s, because we didn't collect data in 67 and 68. So the first thing I want to, to look at, um, well, this is like continuing the work of cultural indicators. And when I was, uh, came to Delaware in 1993, I started collecting data there. So we've got just about every single year from 1967 to 2010, one year is missing. And that's 2007 when I was on sabbatical and did not, and did not collect the data. Overall, we've got more than 3,000 primetime programs in this data set, close to 12,000 major or leading characters, those who play central roles in this. Now, what's really unique about this is that we've used the same operational definitions and the same variables over this whole time period. And it has been something that I've done most of the training, so it's been collected in basically the same way. Um, since the mid-90s, I've collected it by making it a pedagogical assignment. Our major in communication at Delaware is one that focuses on theory and research. And we want our students to do research. We have something called discovery learning. Discovery learning has to be either you're doing research, you're doing an internship, you're doing study abroad, some kind of thing where you're doing this discovery learning and something. So we strive to get our kids, our students involved in research. So the course I teach each fall, which is called media message analysis, we are collecting this data. Students are collecting the data. Their final assignment is to write a report about the data that they have collected. Some of them will be heading with me and Jim and some of his students to Eastern Communication Association in a couple of weeks where some of the data are going to be presented from the fall of 2010, focusing on power to do that. But let's start looking at gender representation. One of the most consistent findings that we've had, beginning with the studies done by Sydney Head and Dallas Smythe of New York City programming that was on the air in the mid-1950s, shows that women are underrepresented. So in this chart, you can see that start out here in 1967, where we've got women are about 25% of the sample, men are 75%. And we can see we've got the downward trend for males, upward trend it's doing that. And these are statistically significant uh, trends that we're seeing in the data. Now, in the 
1980s, we start to see, well, women are getting to be about 30%. In the, around the 90s, during the 90s, we see women have progressed to about 40% of these samples, men to about 60% of the samples. And we've been mired in the 60-40 split since the uh, 19, uh, 1990s to do that. So while we find that programs in the 70s, such as Mary Tyler Moore, who focused on a strong and very liberated woman for that time, but the men still played a really big part in these weekly episodes. Okay, so here was Mary, but she had her three compadres who were there to do this. Most of the shows were more like Hawaii Five-0 in their gender makeup to do that. In the 1980s, we start to see that change, and we start to see that 70-30 split that goes on. But then we see, you know, with 65-35, and then in the 1980s, we start to see shows like The Golden Girls, which focused on all women, designing women. And then we had some programs like Cagney and Lacey that had male leads, but then also a lot of female, male characters who did a lot of the things. Um, for the most part, most shows continue to be more male than female. And so we've had Dallas, which is always a you know, favorite program, Star Trek. Truckies out there, LA Law, and of course we had Cheers, which I had to put in because Boston. <laughs> Jim drove me by Cheers the <laughs> on our way home, just to, to look at that. Um, in the 1990s, okay, we start to see that change, that 60-40 representation now, although the cast in many of some of the more popular shows like Seinfeld, one woman and three men, for the most part, as you, as you looked at that. LA uh, Law and Order, we start to see the first of the many different versions of Law and Order that are there. So they're more uh, reminiscent of those male-dominated casts. Um, the years surrounding the turn of the century had some strong female characters. Um, Allie McBeal, remember that show? Uh, and Felicity, remember that show? Kind of neat, neat shows that were on, however, the storylines often revolved more around traditional than non-traditional themes in these. And Allie McBeal was always talking about finding a boyfriend, some kind of you know, male pieces, part of lawyering, but that was you know, the whole part of it. Um, early 20s, we find programs such as Gilmore Girls, Okay, another of my favorites, Cold Case, I was watching this last night, uh, and many of the numerous variations of Law and Order and uh, CSI and all of those, we see that. But we really see no real change in that distribution of men and women. We still see women being underrepresented. So turning to moving that, let's talk a little bit about the racial distribution. And this has changed from the late 60s to the first decade of the 21st centuries. Um, in the late, this thing, we see, this is done not by years, but just by decade, that our black characters are here, our characters are here. And then we have other races. Um, about 10% of the characters in the 60s, 70s, and 80s were black. <coughs> and then about 14% start being in the 90s and through the first uh, decade of the 21st century. But that increase is due primarily to the population of the all-black situation comedies. 
That's where we found most of the black characters. In the 70s, we first started to see them with programs such as the Jeffersons, which was an offshoot of Archie Bunker, and a show called Good Times. The mid-1980s, okay, we had the Cosby Show, which everybody you know, still loves and so on, but more women than men, if you notice in this team. But all the shows, all the stories really revolved around so that was really what was what was going on there. So just you know, even though there are a lot more women, that you have all those stories revolved around there. Um, in the 90s, we see more programs with all black casts. So we had Family Matters that was on, uh, Sister Sister, Moesha, some of them. Some of them uh, were on the networks: ABC, CBS, NBC. Uh, Moesha was on um, UPN or WB, and I'll uh, come back to that in a second. So, and which UPN and WB, which then migrated, formed together to form the CW to do that. But a lot of those networks, they were having more of those all-black situation comedies. So what we found was that we start to see, you know, in this area, the parity, blacks reaching parity with their numbers in the U.S. population which was, you know, before they were underrepresented, but now they're in, you know, close to what they are in the U.S. population. White characters kind of just, you know, over there about 80% all the time. But as I've noticed in some studies I've recently done, you see this dip here, the black characters, moving down again. And by the end of the first decade, around 2009, 2010, in our samples, we see fewer black characters. The proportion of black characters is now down to about 8%. So it seems as though right now we're losing that parity with the US population. And I think this is a very telling thing. And that's due to the fact that we don't have these black situation comedies on television anymore. So we can, you can look at, okay, well, there were more blacks. They were only in the situation comedy, so they've seen in this comic milieu. Today we're not seeing that, but we're seeing fewer black characters. So there's always been this concern about you know, numbers of black characters on, on television to do that. Um, situation comedies, just a little statistic of looking at that, dropped from 30, 37% of the programs in this week of primetime broadcast that we did in 2000 to 22% in the fall of 2010. So there are fewer situation comedies there. And part of this is because it costs more money to make a sitcom than do a reality program. So we're going to see the, the reality programs because money is down at the bottom. So if we look at um, this, this chart, this is an interesting one. You gotta, this looks like you know, it's just you know, a lot of slides just kind of jumbled together, kind of push you together. The one that we're really most interested in looking at this was looking at sitcoms by the makeup of the cast. So what we coded was, is the cast, is it all white in the sitcom? Does it have mostly white characters, maybe one or two minorities? Does it have all minority characters, and it, or is it an integrated piece? Now, this is our mix, which we're seeing, it's kind of low down here, it's kind of gone up here. Our all white, okay, and mostly white, that's 
whole predominant there, but this is our piece from Minority Characters. 2000, we see this, the sitcoms by the cast, really high up here. We're coming down here very, very low, so that we have this you know, underrepresentation of the sitcoms by the cast that they have. So this is, again, showing that decrease in uh, minority characters, particularly black characters, on television to do that. So if we're looking, looking at that. So, um, I'm just, you know, I, this is something I want to just keep my finger on and keep looking at, seeing what's going to happen here. We seem to have lost parity with the U.S. population, and we need to start to also look at this in terms of the figures from the 2010 census, because most of these other studies were done looking at the 2000 census. And I just read that uh, the numbers of minorities have greatly increased. Um, in the 2010 census, particularly Hispanics, making up um, very, a much larger uh, percentage than they had before. So um, that's you know, a little bit about race. All right, so let's talk about age. Age has been another variable that very much differentiates men and women. Okay, this is just looking at age from 2000 to 2010. And it's looking at a category called social age. And social age is the category where we're looking at the stages of the life cycle that we all go through. We're children and adolescents, which is here. Young adults, just the large majority of folks here. Middle age and the elderly. Now, television has consistently underrepresented children and the elderly. Very, very, very few of them. And if we look at this difference between men and women, we see that the men are more likely to be middle-aged than the women and less likely to be young adults than the women. Indeed, women continually are presented as younger than the men on television until, and I'll get to that until in a minute, the... Um, so in each decade, when we look at, from another variable called chronological age, what the average age is, men tend to be four years older than the women on television. Okay, now, even though women are often judged to be younger, they age faster than men. If we look at this chart, this is looking at, um, again, from 2000 to 2010. These are men who are judged to be between 25 and 50. And these are women 25 to 50. So when we look at this, we have the men, about 30% of them are young adults, about 33% of the women are young adults. And then for middle age, we have the men here and the women. So the women are a little bit likely to be younger. But this is the real telling one. Men, 51 to 65, much more likely to be called middle age. Fewer of them are seen as elderly. However, the woman between 61, 51 and 65, less likely middle age, more likely to be called elderly. And then, and I didn't put this up because there's nothing very interesting about it, any character judged to be over 66 was elderly. Now, this is a far cry from what many of the people who are over 60 
you know, 66 at this point, don't consider themselves elderly to do that. As my mother, who will reach her 101st birthday in a couple of, in a month and a half, has always said, that's for old people. You know, like, you know, you're not old, Mom. Okay. <laughs> just, to, just to do that. So we have, you know, th this whole sense of women aging. But, you know, once you're over 66, forget it. You're, you know, you're over the hill on television, so to speak, to, to do that. Um, marital status. Let me look a little bit about marital status. This is another um, element that differentiates the way we see men and women on television. Um, men are blue, the women are red. And what we're, this is looking at from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s. So in the 70s, about the same proportion of men and women are single. Um, single, yeah. In the 70s, more women are married, fewer men are married. In the 80s, more women start to see being single. Do this again in the 80s, but fewer men are married. In the 90s, about equal proportion. And look at how much higher it is here that we've got many more characters being seen as single. And then we have this difference. And then in the 2000, we see, again, many more single, fewer married characters. And some of this comes from you know, over here that we're seeing fewer of those situation comedies when we'd be more likely to see married things. And one of the interesting things about marital status is that we always typically know the marital status of a woman on television. There are a lot of men we don't know the marital status for on television. So that's, you know, kind of piece that, that's out there to do that. Okay. Um, yeah, this is that, this not known, less likely uh, to be given, you know, don't have that information. Many of them are single and then married. So just looking at that piece to do that. And then another um, really interesting part of okay, is that of occupations. A television has always overrepresented the glamorous and exciting jobs. Okay. Um, first 40 years we're more likely to see programs about doctors. Okay, very early doctor show, Marcus Weldon. Okay, ER. Many of you are more familiar with ER. Um, lawyers, okay, LA Law another one, Hill Street Blues, which is law enforcers. Don't see very many programs at all about bus drivers, about bank tellers, or clerical workers. We just don't see them. Um, since the 1970s, there's been, this is looking at who's working and who's not working, differences between men and women. So if you just, you know, just look at the general picture here. Fewer men are being seen working over time and more women are being seen working. So women who are working, it's increasing over time, whereas men who are working is decreasing over time. To take, take a look at that. Now you kind of see, you see these ups and downs, and these ups and downs, if you just did a five decade, they would just um, balance out and do that. Looking at this chart, this is the representation of professionals. Okay, so people who would be teachers, doctors, lawyers, and so on and so forth. Men as professionals dip down, women as professionals is increasing. And this is going from 73 to 2010. So kind of the status of women and the kinds of jobs that they have has been, has been increasing to do that. This one is looking at 
whether they are, and this is done by decade, a professional, a white collar worker, blue collar, a criminal, or law enforcement. So, as we start in the 70s, and this is just for women, fewer of them are professionals. When we go to the 90s and 2000, many more professionals. We see white collar workers are decreasing. Okay, they went up a little bit there, but then they're decreasing. Blue collar is kind of staying the same, decreasing a little. Criminals are kind of, you know, decreasing a little bit up from there. Law enforcement, a little bit increasing to do that. But the kind of the key, pretty key one is kind of this thing in terms of the professionals and that the white collars are going down and blue collar workers are going down in terms of the women that we see. Um, this next chart looks at the kind of job that you have. We can look at jobs as maybe you have your traditional male job. Okay, what's a traditional male job? Firefighter. Firefighter. Okay. okay. Traditional female job? Nurse. A nurse. Hairdresser. Hairdresser. Secretary. Okay. Yeah, secretary. All those. Okay. And then we've got our neutral jobs, which are you know, just kind of out there to do that. So this is looking at by decade for women, whether they're doing a neutral job, a female job, or a male job. So as we see this, the percentages of women in the female jobs is going down. We're not seeing that many women as you know, secretaries and so on on television. Neutral jobs is kind of going up a little bit. Male jobs is going up a little bit. So we see this change in the kind of job that we have. And most of this is that you, you know, the male jobs are the ones that are more adventurous, the more exciting. Those are the jobs that you're going to see people talking about on television. You do that. And then this is another one by status, high status and low status. So low status jobs, middle status jobs, these here, and then high status. So Probably the most interesting piece here is that for women by decade, the percentages in low status jobs is decreasing. So we're seeing more women in these you know, middle status and again, a little bit of increase in terms of the high status. So we have all of these um, pieces that are, that are there. So this is you know, what we have in that area. So I gotta talk about violence would not be you know, a talk that I give if I didn't talk a little bit about violence. And this has been the topic that has probably raised the most concern with academics and a little bit about polit from politicians. Although politicians often use the area of violence on television as a way to show that they're, their constituents, they're doing something. But they're really not because there have been essentially two laws passed about violence on television since the late 1960s. But there have been a lot of congressional hearings. And the politicians get themselves on television and the newspaper. Oh, they were at this, this congressional hearing. They did this and this. But really didn't do much of anything uh, to do that. So in our cultural indicators perspective of violence, we look at physical violence and define violence as the overt expression of physical force with or without a weapon against self or other. And it may be, you know, it has hurting and killing, the possibility of being hurt or killed or actually hurting or killing something. 
It has to involve humans or human-like characters. All kinds of violence are included, even comic violence. Now, comic violence, this is an interesting kind of story because in the 70s, when we were doing most of this research, the networks were the big three, ABC, CBS, and NBC. They were the only game in town when you watched television. That's what you turned on. Maybe you turned on PBS, but when you're watching television, you were looking at one of those. It didn't have, <coughs> excuse me, all our alternatives we have today. <coughs> so the networks, they were making money hand over fist, and they had their own research departments. And they would do research about television violence. And one of the areas that we had the most disagreement with the networks is whether we should include comic violence or not. Because it said, comic violence, that doesn't matter. Kids know that this is fantasy. They know that this is comic. And they're not going to learn these comic lessons. Well, OK, you know, you say that. But in the mid-1970s, the networks started having on particularly for kids, programs that they call pro-social programs. These are programs that were in a comic setting, showing kids how to get along with other kids, doing all these kind of pro-social messages. Okay, something like Fat Albert, which was on. And the networks, I can remember sitting with them at a round table at a conference, said, well, you know, these pro-social programs are phenomenal. The kids are learning all these pro-social messages, and it's really, these are the greatest things that, you know, since sliced bread, to, to hit down. And I remember saying to one of them, Horst, they're learning the positive messages, but violence they're not learning? And I'm just, you know, we kind of went back and forth. And I said, you can't have it both ways. Either they're going to learn from a comic context, or they're not. You can't pick and choose what they are, you know, what they're going to do. So. Again, comic context is something that we have always included. And yet, again, you have to remember, when you're talking about television, when you're talking about the stories in prime time, we're not talking about news. We're talking about the stories that are created. And everything is there for a reason. Violence is there for a reason. Violence talks about violence, people who commit violence, and people who are victimized. And that is chosen to show kind of patterns of victimization. So we'll talk about that um, in a minute. So um, let me just talk a little bit about the number of violent actions. Okay, this is violence defined as you know, somebody shooting somebody, somebody having a fist fight, or so on and so forth. And this has been rather stable since 1967. The number of violent actions that you'll see sitting down watching television during prime time, broadcast network television. Um, in 67, there were five acts of violence per program. Very stable like that. We've been, you know, down to as few as 2.492. Um, but in the past couple of years, we now have, in this last fall, seven acts of violence per program. But it's still close. There's no, no trend. No increase, no decrease. It's kind of fluctuated a bit, but now we're, you know, seven, seven acts of violence do that. Now, this chart is looking at, by decade, programs that had no violence, okay, so these are our ones, programs that had violence that was minor to the plot, and programs that had violence that was major to the plot. So, 
as we see this, we see well in the 60s, we had a lot of violence, a lot of programs. Half the programs had violence that was major to the plot. 70s, 50%. Then in the 80s, this decreased. In the 90s, we saw the least amount of violence. We really saw this kind of decrease in violence. And now, we're back up again. So at the end, particularly by the end of this first decade, the numbers of programs. So we've got now about 80% of all the programs have some violence, whether it's minor or major to the plot, to do that. One of the biggest changes that we've seen, um, and this is, this is just looking at that same data. This is through uh, from 2000 to 2010, looking at the violence where there is major violence, which is kind of gone up and down, um, and then minor violence, and then no violence. But you see this no violence is really kind of going down to do that. The, um, one of the biggest changes is in the percent of characters involved in violence. So these are looking at any kind of violence, whether you hurt somebody or hurt yourself. Okay, so involved in violence. So this is men being involved in violence, women involved in violence, and then we have killing. It was either killed or involved in killing. So men, involvement in violence. Gee, it's going down. Women involvement in violence is going down. Involvement in killing is going down. So through the, in the 90s, we're seeing fewer characters involved in violence that we are looking at. And one of the interesting pieces is looking at the relationship between hurting someone and being hurt. Okay, so, so these are men who hurt and these are men who were victimized, who were hurt. Okay, so you're looking at this hurting others, being hurt yourself. Hurting others, being hurt yourself. So in the 60s and in the 70s, we see that the, this distribution is favoring being a victim of violence, much more so for females than for males. Then we start to see in the 80s, we're still seeing this difference, but we start to see now in the 90s and particularly in the 2000s, we're favoring hurting than being a victim of violence. So women, we can't say now that women are more likely to be victims of violence because they're not. They're just kind of equally likely to hurt other people as to be hurt themselves. And that's a major, major change. So it might be, you know, think about it. Okay, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't know. Showing women having more power, that they're not just being victims, but is it good that people are shown being, you know, being um, hurting other people? Um, a lot of this I would um, attribute to programs like Law and Order. Now, I'm a fan of Law and Order. You know, I've been known to watch Law and Order all day, particularly with my daughter. She'll pull it out and say, "Mom, I'm watching this. Come sit with me." And I'll sit. I'll say, "Okay, I'm going to watch just one." Well, I'm gone for the day. <laughs> you know, just to do that. I, you know, I'm a favorite. But Law and Order, the plot of this is not so much about. It is about a victim. But it, the plot itself, the major characters are all involved in solving the problem, trying to figure out what happened and doing that solving, not, you know, not really talking too much about, about the victims. So we you know, kind of see all this. Um, I'm doing that. All right. So in, well, that's kind of where 
I had that last time. Just go on so we look at that because I'm going to go and talk about other things. Um, one of the things that you know, as I've done all this research for so many years, and just looking at it, I think probably that there are these things that are happening with men and women, and I think probably the biggest thing is this continued underrepresentation of women. And where does that that go? And I'm probably should be finishing up, yeah? Okay. <laughs> I ended up talking more than I was. I can't even talk about all the rest about cultivation. But anyway, I'll just again kind of finish, finish this up. That the underrepresentation of women, underrepresentation of minorities, to me is the most critical piece of what's going on. Because thinking about children and what they're learning from watching television. And if you don't see yourself on television, you think, how come I don't see myself? What's wrong with me? Why am I not there? And I see older people. And that's, you know, kids learn how to go on. So this is, you know, really where we are still in the end of the first decade of the 21st century, still have women being underrepresented on television. And this is, you know, sometimes people say, well, you keep doing this, you keep finding the same thing. I say, yeah, because it feels so good, you know, bang your head up against the wall because it feels so good when you stop uh, kind of thing. Um, but it's just something. You know, the, the, the year that I come up and find, ah, 50-50, that would be, you know, terrific. But it's not, you know, that hasn't happened so far. So cultivation, we'll leave that for another time, just to, to do that. And I will finish talking now. And if you've got questions, I'm more than happy to take questions. This has been a communication research podcast, a production of the Communication Research Center at Boston University. For more information about the Communication Research Center, please go to www.bu.edu slash com slash crc. Thank you.